Coming up on Stu Does America, we know the woke mobs are always around to cancel you. But how else are they going to ruin your life? We have the details. Inez Stepman joins us to hopefully answer the question, are our kids ever going back to school? And how should we be thinking about the latest numbers on coronavirus and the mask mandates and all that fun? Make sure to subscribe on our podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. Uh, we've been putting up our biggest listener number, numbers yet. Thank you for that. But even if you watch on G TV only, go ahead, subscribe anyway on podcast. It's fine. It's okay. Then we can shoot up the charts and more people can check out the show. And if you get the show for free on YouTube, thank you very much for that as well. If you get, want it, you just go search YouTube for Stu and I will be the first one there. Subscribe and click like right now. Click like on this video right now. Uh, it may, you know, if we keep doing this, it's going to probably turn ugly. I'll say something that changes your mind and you want to click unlike. So just do it now and forget about it. And remember, our 100th anniversary spectacular is this Friday on YouTube. Stu does Power Hour. The combination of political commentary with a ridiculously stupid drinking game. Chad Prather, Jason Buttrell, Sarah Gonzalez, Bill Richmond from Stephen Crowder's show. Going to be a great group joining us to make fools of ourselves. Make sure to click the bell on YouTube to check it out. It's happening uh, right now, or excuse me, right after our uh, normal show on Friday. And I want to uh, take a quick minute before we start uh, to address the actions of Philadelphia Eagles wide receiver Deshaun Jackson. Unfortunately, we're out of time on today's show. Stu does America. Ah, the IRS. Did you know the tax deadline for 2020 is only a week away? Of course, we conservatives can't stand the IRS, but did you know the wokest of the woke hate it too? Hmm. Unfortunately, there is not too much anti-tax crusading we're going to be able to team up on because it's not the Internal Revenue Service they hate so much. It's you and your internalized racial superiority. IRS. Mm-hmm. Get used to that term because that's a buzz term that you're going to be hearing a lot of uh, in your place of business coming up soon. Filmmaker Chris uh, Rufo, who writes for the City Journal, got wind of a training session in Seattle for white employees entitled Interrupting Internalized Racial Superiority and Whiteness. I know we have a veritable smorgasbord of colors, races and creeds that tune into this stupid show. But if you happen to be a whitey, when is the last time? You try to interrupt your internalized racial superiority and whiteness. You can't answer that, can you? Typical white person. Mm. This level of wokeness is perhaps a little ahead of your hometown, but it's coming your way and it's coming fast. Part of our Stu Does America Constitution states, don't make decisions based on skin color for any reason, ever. The idea that you would only invite white people to an event in the first place should strike us all as a really bad idea, as should gathering a race of people together to tell them how horrible they are. I feel like this has been tried before, and it doesn't turn out well for anyone, but maybe I'm remembering incorrectly. Rufo was able to get his hands on the teaching documents for this conference, and they are something to behold. This is just a preview that he posted on Twitter. He's publishing a story as well that we're hoping to follow up on later this week. How do you interrupt your whiteness? Mm. Practice self-talk that affirms our complicity in racism. Look, if you are complicit in racism, you should probably stop being complicit in it. Talking to yourself about it is optional. But just because you're white does not mean you're complicit in racism. If you're saying every member of a race is automatically guilty of a negative behavior based on their skin color, that is, by definition, racist. 
It also mentions that you should talk through your struggles of undoing your own whiteness. And remember, hang out with more friends practicing anti-racist accomplicehood and less friends who absolve you from any form of racism or tell you that you're right. This sounds like a fun existence, doesn't it? Now, if you're not if you're not sure how to be an anti-racist accomplice, Seattle has you taken care of. Just let go of things like comfort. (laughs) Just let go of comfort, everybody. Uh, Expectations of emotional safety and guaranteed physical safety. This sounds like the waiver you had to sign entering Jeffrey Epstein's mansion. And by the way, if you are a member of the Studas America racial smorgasbord, who happens to be Arab, This means you, whitey, because Arabs are whites, according to the city of Seattle. This is bonkers. Does this seem insane enough for you? Let me take you from the anti-whiteness wokeness to the anti-male wokeness. And for this one, I give a little bit of a content warning. Just a little bit. A new Guardian article outlines what is screwing up our cities. Is it ridiculous social justice conferences like the one in Seattle? No, no. Upward thrusting buildings ejaculating into the sky. Do cities have to be so sexist? (laughs) Is it satire or is it real? It's hard to even know. I'll give you a sample uh, sentence here. Glass ceilings and phallic towers. Mean streets and dark alleys. Road names and statues of men. From the physical to the metaphorical, the city is filled with reminders of masculine power. And yet we rarely talk of the urban landscape as an active participant in gender equality. A building, no matter how phallic, isn't actually misogynist, is it? Why no, it is not. This is a real article written by a real person who actually sat down, presumably at a computer, and wrote this article. Really put a lot of work and thought into it. And then sent the letter to her editors, and then they approved it. And then they sent it to a copy editor and then they publish it. They actually publish an article titled Upward Thrusting Buildings Ejaculating into the Sky. Do cities have to be so sexist? That would be like publishing an article titled Upward Thrusting Buildings Ejaculating into the Sky. Do cities have to be so sexist? There is just nothing to compare it to. That's how endlessly dumb it is. It's basically the obsessive rant of a cat lady who is, of course, a professor of gender studies. Actually, correction, she is a a professor of geography. She's the director of women's and gender studies. You can read this article if you want to take a trip through the graveyards of feminism. You can even get a link to a 1977 essay, Skyscraper Seduction, Skyscraper Rape. (laughs) Which has got to be really good. It will tell you uh, how women are being raped by skyscrapers or something. Imagine walking around a city and only seeing penises in all of the architecture. I just, if the author were following her own rules, instead of being distracted by all the imaginary penises floating around her at all times, she'd realize that the article is deeply transphobic. She argues that cities are symbols of toxic masculinity, and her proof is that buildings are phallic and men are mean. How bigoted to assume that penises are masculine. What a crude gender assumption, and I will not stand by and let it happen. The point of this is, well, part of it is just to laugh at it, but it's not just to laugh at it, although that is sort of a necessity at times. The race to wokeness is having real world implications. Sure, people are losing their jobs and their reputations. 
One place where we've seen the pushback against aggressive maleness and anti-whiteness also, though, has been with our police. What happens when you overload officers with claims of their racism being so bad that we need to defund the police entirely? Well, violence is exploding in cities all around the country right now. We went over some of it yesterday. It's legitimately soul-crushing. An 11-year-old football star was hit in the head by a bullet after, in a, during a cookout uh, when shooting broke out nearby. An eight-year-old was shot and killed in Atlanta. A seven-year-old was one of uh, 80 people shot in Chicago. An eight-year-old was shot and killed in Alabama. A six-year-old was shot in San Francisco. And a man in the Bronx was walking his six-year-old daughter across the street when a car pulled up next to him and shot him in the chest. He fell down as his daughter ran away. He was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. There's video that one that I'm not going to show you as I made the mistake of watching it myself without realizing what was coming. If you want a world where this stuff is more and more common, like it was in New York City before Giuliani cracked down on crime, go ahead. But I don't want any part of it. John Cohen is a former Department of Homeland Security official. He explained why we're seeing violence accelerate on the Start Here podcast from ABC News. You know, the traditional policing approach is to saturate neighborhoods where violence is occurring um, with large numbers of police officers, visible presence on the street, targeting gang members, targeting violent drug traffickers. People with long guns have taken over the restaurant and the street in front of it, and police let it happen. But in today's environment, particularly when you have neighborhoods telling the police, we don't want you here. The loud pop was not from leftover fireworks. Authorities report a bullet went right through the front windshield of this marked police cruiser. Police agencies are uh, hesitant and police officers are hesitant to use those traditional strategies. Got it? Woke activists are telling the police not to show up so they don't want to show up. Or how about the release of so-called nonviolent offenders? You often hear about, uh, particularly when we're talking about the release of people who are in jail, that they're only releasing nonviolent offenders. Well, people who are incarcerated because they were prosecuted for a nonviolent offense may actually have a long record of violent behavior. Uh, So they're releasing people who have been incarcerated for the crime that they've been convicted for, but that isn't necessarily a good representation of the type of person or the level oh, of violence. Like, like you, you catch a super scary dude who, who sells drugs and shoots people, but you caught him with the drugs. So like that's the easy conviction. Right. You may have somebody in jail who was prosecuted for being in possession for five pounds of marijuana, uh, and that's what they were convicted of. But th- they may have a, a long history of violence that wasn't a part of the prosecution, uh, but it mm. still uh, is a reflection of the person's personality and behavior. They are a violent person. They just may not have been convicted of a violent offense. These are the consequences of wokeness. Sure, you can take all the aggressive masculinity out of law enforcement. You can take the police off the streets. You can put the criminals back on them. But this is going to be the result. This approach won't make black lives matter. It will make all lives disposable. Intermittent fasting is exploding in popularity as a healthy and effective weight loss strategy. It's something that's a little bit different 
than maybe what you've done before. And let's be honest about it. We're America. I look around. I look in the mirror. I know we need something different. What we're trying, you know, kind of in the past has not been working out so well. So why not try uh, intermittent fasting? It speeds up your metabolism and you see results immediately. I'm talking about the scale moving like every day, not like, well, at the end of the week, you should see a good half pound go away. And that should be good. But I suffered the whole week. What are you talking about? I want that thing to move. When I'm on my diet, when I'm eating differently, I want to be able to see the, the, that scale move. At Fast Blast, uh, they can help you through this process. Make sure you understand exactly how you should do it. If you go to fastblast.com blaze, they can do it with you and really give you a full plan on exactly what you need to do. It's not really complicated, but you do want to make sure you understand it fully. Um, they also have these Fast Blast smoothies. Fast Blast smoothies are delicious. They fill you up. They are really, really good. They help you, you know, have great energy, fewer cravings, and it is really uh, simple. You don't have to like mix it up. You don't have to do any of that stuff. They're just pre pre-made. You're, they're, they're delicious right out of the package. Uh, just drink one every couple hours. Combine it with lots of liquids, and it'll keep you satisfied. We always tell you to do your own homework, so go ahead, learn about intermittent fasting at fastblast.com/blaze. The slash blaze part, of course, is important because that's how they know you like this stupid show. So get started today with Fast Blast for a healthier and smaller you. It's Fast Blast dot com slash blaze. This morning, the White House press secretary sent out a press release linking to an article from the Washington Examiner editorial board. The article was entitled This Fall, Get the Children Back in School. It was followed by a teleconference with senior administration officials. This afternoon, President Trump has held a roundtable in the East Room of the White House with teachers, administrators and students from around the country to discuss how to safely reopen schools during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a deeply concerning issue. We, we can't stop our education system, but how do we fully open it up? It's, it's tough to tell. It's about as far as we've gotten with this issue at this point. Uh, there are so many unknowns. What exactly would reopening schools involve and how would it play out? Ines Stepman wrote a great article about the future of public education, the public education system and how the pandemic will affect it. Ines is a senior policy analyst with the Independent Women's Forum, a Claremont Institute Lincoln Fellow and a senior contributor to The Federalist. Ines, thanks for coming on the program. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for highlighting this important topic. Yeah, um, let me start with this. Um, we kind of had millions of parents. Um, I was one of them, and my wife in particular was one of them, who went into the world of homeschooling sort of against our wills. Uh, at some, I think it takes a very special person to do that the right way. And as you kind of point out, it's not really homeschooling what we did. It's something, uh, some weird hybrid. Um, is this, do we look at this as a, a potential to get new people in, uh, you know, on the boat when it comes to homeschooling? Or is this something where as soon as people can send their kids back to school, they're going to? Well, I call it accidental homeschooling, right? <laughs> um, but, but as I pointed out in the article, it, it isn't really what most homeschoolers in America um, think of as homeschooling in part because students spend so much time on on screens right um and in in uh zoom calls or um so much time on the computer a lot of away from that and they have a lot of the social aspects that of course um we have not been able to to enjoy um especially in in the first couple of months where, where the cases were really spiking and we didn't know how far they were going to go up um most homeschoolers have co-ops, they have activities outside, they have um, small groups that gather. And all of those things, I think, um, will be, be all the more attractive in states that are in those phase two or phase three of reopening, where opening a large school with, for example, as my high school had 
well over 2,000 students um, may not be allowed or feasible, um, but smaller co-ops of you know five or 10 students might be. And so I do think homeschooling will become at least temporarily more attractive uh, to a lot of families, and, and hopefully some of them um, will continue homeschooling long after this crisis is passed. Um, but but what I really hope to see, uh, and what I'm, I, I would consider a silver lining uh, to, to the crisis that our schools are going through, is if this moment recenters parents as really the directors of their children's education, uh, especially when it comes to content and curriculum, because we have been moving away uh, from that basic American idea that parents are responsible for the education of their children, even if they then hire other people um, to do some of the teaching for them. We've been moving away from that idea, and we have not been empowering parents, sometimes even with basic knowledge about what their kids are learning, let alone the, the power to decide about issues like that. Yeah, you made a really a really great point, and I think a lot of times, as, as conservatives, I'm a professional complainer about pretty much everything, and you made a great point that in, in places like France and Germany, uh, you know, it's much different. The idea of homeschooling is either completely outlawed or incredibly uh, restricted by the government. We actually have a fairly robust system to, to do this outside of the public sphere. And if we can grow that, as you point out, it's kind of a silver lining coming out of all of this. Is that how we is that the sort of direction we should be pursuing here? Yeah, I see it as actually a revival of the, the purpose of American schooling. Uh, our public school system, as important as, as reading, writing, and arithmetic um, are, our public school system and the public investment in universal education is actually supposed to, um, to, to shape citizens that are capable of living in the American Republic. And we know that schools and the public school system has done a very, very poor job of doing that. Not only have they taught um, my generation and the generation that comes after us, um, very, very little about basic civics, right? Um, and, and that continues all the way up into the university system. I mean, only 12% of college graduates actually know that the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, right? Um, they don't know basic things like how many years a senator's term is. Um, so they don't have any of that actual civic knowledge about this country and about how our system works. But what they do have are very strong opinions about how the system is unjust, um, and, and that America is racist and sexist at its core. And that's really what we have been teaching in the K-12 schools. And then, of course, those ideas originate uh, in the academy. Uh, but I would see it as a very salutary thing for the, the um, schooling system in America to return to what I see as its roots of, first of all, parent-centered um, you know, direction mm -hmm. about learning, right? That doesn't mean that every parent is going to homeschool. That's, of course, <laughs> silly. Um, but parents are the ones who should be in charge about, um, you know, what their kids are seeing when it comes especially to, to cultural hot button topics like, um, you know, the American founding, unfortunately, is now a hot button topic, right? But uh, human sexuality is another one where, where schools and parents, um, parents often find out this stuff, you know, only because their kid asks a straight question. And I do think that if there is a silver lining of this, it's that so much of this um, is, is now going on, this indoctrination is now going on in parents' living rooms and in places where they can he hear and see what their kids are actually learning. And I, I think it would be, uh, as I said, a great silver lining of this whole crisis uh, if, if it was to spur parents into, into action um, to, to ensure that their kids are, are learning 
uh, things that are consistent with their values at home. Yeah, you kind of make this point in 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 the, in the story, and I, uh, it's a great one to read. Make sure we'll, we'll tweet it out here um, uh, from at Studios America. Um, but there's a uh, you make the point kind of that K through twelve kind of gets overlooked a little bit. And like we look at talk about the universities all the time and this sort of indoctrination process that goes on. And K twelve, we're like, ah, well, they're, they're learning math. What could possibly go wrong? Well, a lot can go wrong. You go into the sixteen nineteen project, which is already starting to penetrate our schools. It's just an offshoot of stuff from you know Howard Zinn, and we've seen a lot of this throughout the years. Is this, is this kind of like the thing that we should be looking for most? I know as a parent going through this, you're right. You do see this stuff more in your face when it's happening in your living room. Is there that risk that when kids go back to school, it's no longer, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind? Yeah, I mean, that's my hope is that it won't be out of sight, out of mind. Um, and and I, I do think that especially conservatives have overlooked the K-12 system for far too long. I mean, conservatives have been uh, warring with the universities since uh, William F. Buckley wrote God, a man at Yale 70 years ago. Right. Everybody knows the universities are super far left. And, and the academy is where a lot of these uh, left wing ideas that we're now battling in the political sphere uh, come from. So I'm not downplaying our battle with the universities. Uh, but but oftentimes conservatives ignore the fact that a lot of, of these ideas have filtered into the K-12 system. Um, look, as you said, Howard Zinn's A People's History of America uh, is one of the more popular uh, textbooks in, in high schools in America. The 1619 Project and, and the materials that they put out that are Common Core compliant and um, blessed by the Pulitzer Foundation, those materials have been in use um, we know for sure 3,500 schools, but that was back in January. Now there are a lot of schools that are adopting 1619 materials as a response to the current riots and as a response uh, to BLM. So I would only expect that number to grow. And these, these are the kind of assignments that have kids black out the Declaration of Independence, the words of the Declaration of Independence, uh, because they're they're false and a lie. Um, so I, I, I really think that uh, th- there's this sort of... Um, calming sentiment that conservatives tell ourselves, which is, oh, when they grow up and hit the real world, like they'll they'll become conservatives, you know, the, the old canard about if you're, you're not liberal when you're young and then you have no heart, all of that. We haven't seen that. We've seen the opposite. We've graduated a bunch of little cultural revolutionaries and, and we've graduated them into uh, the boardrooms, the corporate boardrooms. We've graduated them into tech companies where they censor you know, any opinion uh, that, that they don't agree with. Uh, we've graduated them into the newsrooms where younger graduates are now toppling sort of the old left in, in the newsrooms of the New York Times. Uh, these, this is the direct consequence of, of teaching uh, from from basically from kindergarten all the way up through graduate and law school, right, that that the American project is unjust at its root. And, and that is the un, you know underlying premise of a lot of the materials that kids are getting in their K-12 schools. And I just really hope that uh, this, this dual moment, right, these dual crises that we have, one, the outside crisis with the coronavirus and the attendant shutdowns, um, but two, this sort of internal crisis that we have been having with the riots, with, you know, statues of George Washington being toppled, right? Um, I, I hope that these two crises will spur finally some actual serious thought about reforming the education system, about impairing, empowering all parents, not just um, low-income parents in in, uh, in cities and urban environments, but all parents, uh, including, uh, you know, suburban parents, middle-class families with school choice, not just as a lifeline to a better school or a better education, but as leverage so that when you do go in and have that meeting with the principal or the superintendent or the teacher, you know, and when you do get together with fellow parents and say, we're not happy with what is going on in our 10, you know, 10 year olds class, 
um, that you have that kind of leverage because right now the system has absolutely no incentive to listen to parents and it won't listen to parents until parents are able to walk out with that investment that the taxpayer makes in their child's education, walk out with that in their pocket if they're not satisfied. So I, I hope that this will turn our attention to the, the real crisis that has been sort of slow burning in our public education system for the last several decades. Hmm. We have about uh, one minute left, Inez. Uh, I, want to, I want you to touch, if you can, quickly on a couple of things uh, from the article. One, you, private schools. I think it's been one of the one of the sides we've been able to have to kind of push back against this system. It's it, you, you do have some warnings about what can happen uh, after this crisis there. And also you, you, you focus on something like the classic learning test, which we're fans of here um, that, you know, th- that are, are going outside of this system. Maybe it's we're not just going to indoctrinate kids going forward. Can you give me the kind of the positive and the negative of those two as quickly as possible? Sure. Um, I, 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 starting with the CLT and alternatives, I think one of the most uh, sort of pernicious forces in the education system that is so often overlooked in terms of pushing education to the left, it is the college board and it is a lot of the testing corporations that write, for example, the SAT um, and uh, the uh, AP tests in, in AP history and, and um and so I, I think it's really great that there are alternatives. And, and one of the things is that the CLT is, was, was available to take online. So when SAT and ACT um, testing uh, dates were canceled back in March and April, um, CLT was able to be up and running and, and to administer that test. It's accepted at schools like um, Hillsdale College, but also so, some schools like that are, are more mainstream, like St. John's, but have a, um, a, a classical focus, right? So I do think that'll be a positive. The great danger, as I see it, for the K-12 marketplace in America is that we end up with a much contracted private school system after this. So we know that in in past recessions, the private school market has contracted as as parents essentially can't afford tuition anymore and re-enroll their kids in public school. First of all, that would be a financial disaster for the states, right? They're, they're already going to be facing huge budget crunches because of the lockdowns and because they won't be collecting the normal revenue that they would. Um, but this is going to compound that crisis, right? So if you have 10 or 20 percent of, of private school students currently going back into the public schools, that's a fiscal crisis in mm-hmm. most states. So this is sort of this is this is an issue for everyone and not just people um, who are sending their kids currently to private school. But on the deeper level. Our private schools, you mentioned France and Germany earlier, our private schools are some of the only ones in, in among Western countries and PISA countries that are actually independent when it comes to what they teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a truly independent school sector here. We have all kinds of religious and parochial affiliations. It would be a real shame if we started to lose some of those true alternatives to the public school system that not just are different because they don't happen to take public money, uh, but are different in terms of what they teach and the values they teach and the lens through which they see the world. So. That, that is a great danger, I think, um, in, in the, the, the general uh, K-12 system. Um, it, that's the biggest danger that I see from this, this coronavirus uh, epidemic is, is really losing those private schools. That would be a disaster. Mm. Ines Stepman, uh, the story is what will become of our schools. She goes through all of this and in real detail. It's, it's a great piece and kind of gives you the entire, uh, the entire story um, in all the detail that you're going to need to kind of think about this, because there's a bunch of stuff I hadn't even thought about, honestly, uh, in, in the story. She's a senior policy analyst with the Independent Women's Forum, Claremont Institute, Lincoln Fellow, and senior contributor to the Federalist. We'll make sure we tweet the, uh, the story out. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Inez, we're back in a second.
So, uh, you know, if you're like me, you get to like three or four o'clock in the afternoon, you just want to fall asleep. I mean, you know, it's, it's been a long day. You've been up for several hours. How often do you uh, find yourself mentally sort of walking, uh, wandering off a little bit? How often is that afternoon crash kind of going on and the, you know, maybe the coffee or the soda doesn't fix it? You need Dawn to Dusk. Dawn to Dusk is a physician-formulated extended-release energy supplement which lasts up to 10 hours, increases energy, improves mood, and stimulates your brain all with no jitters. It even can keep you awake through Glenn Beck meetings. It's true. Uh, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a living proof of this. Safe, effective, and a lot less expensive than the kind of crazy drinks or the triple espresso uh, or espresso, espresso, uh, mocha latte or whatever. You can tell I don't drink that crap. Uh, right now, a 15% is off. Of, they'll take 15% off a one-month supply with the offer code STU at mydawntodusk. Dot com. That's mydawntodusk.com. Don't forget the uh, code STU, because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Subscribe and save every month on your offer at mydawntodusk.com. you got to try this stuff. It's great. Mydawntodusk.com. The code is STU. We were just talking about education. You want to hear something different from university? Listen to this. Hey, wokey McWoke face. Quick question. This black life mattered. But doesn't this one? We know this black life matters. But why doesn't this one? We believe that all these black lives mattered. And tens of millions of others too. Murdered in the most dangerous place in this country for any black life. A womb. Murdered and dissected and sold. We believe that each and every human life matters because every human life, regardless of culture or color, is crafted in the sacred image of Almighty God, which is the only possible reason why any life could matter at all. We believe that secular progressive white supremacists have been running a vile and genocidal population control campaign against blacks in America that has straddled centuries, trying to keep them from life, from adulthood, from power, from stable families and communities. And that matters. We believe that the organization Black Lives Matter, registered trademark, is a Marxist front that doesn't care about black lives even half as much as an average white pro-life flyover Trump voting evangelical. There you go. Well, let me, there's a little bit more to this, and uh, I encourage you to seek it out online. It's worth watching, and it's worth thinking about. Uh, If black lives matter, maybe we fight for all black lives. It's a crazy idea. I know not all of them make the news, but maybe a few more of them should. Back in a second. So the Atlanta mayor, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who uh, has been tossed around as a possible VP candidate for uh, Joseph Biden, uh, has tested positive for the coronavirus. Um, This is an interesting situation because it's very possible she got the coronavirus while making Black Lives Matter. Now, she happens to be a black life, and she doesn't seem to matter. Uh, she didn't seem to make herself matter all that much when she went out protesting in the middle of a pandemic. Look, this is a picture of her um, at the pandemic. Uh, just uh, this is actually the picture that CNN Politics used to show that she got uh, coronavirus. Now, I, I don't know that she got it right there, but she's not wearing a mask, and she's in the middle of about a million media members, and she's protesting with Black Lives Matter. Not a good idea. It is not a good idea in the middle of a pandemic to go out and protest anything. That includes right-wing causes and left-wing causes. Do you have the right to do it? You do. 
there's a constitution so she can go out and, and expose herself to coronavirus all she wants. And so can you. I mean, you might really like doing that. I mean, I, I'm not saying I disagree with some of the protests. Some of them are for really good causes, but I would wait. Personally, I'd wait. I just think it't a better idea. I can understand some people don't don't always agree with that. Uh, by the way, uh, President Bolsonaro as well in Brazil, the country most hard hit right now with coronavirus, has also tested positive. He's got some uh, relatively uh, relatively uh, decent amount of sy- symptoms. Um, he's having a couple of uh, pretty significant issues right now. Um, hopefully he'll be okay, even though he's not, not my favorite guy in the world. But uh, still, you don't want people to have to deal with this. Brazil has been crushed by coronavirus. Uh, really, uh, when it comes to a, a, per, you know, a population basis, worse than, than the United States, really. Uh, and has been, even without the population basis, has been exceeding the number of deaths in the United States by a large margin for weeks now. Uh, Mexico has been doing the same thing. India has been exceeding us on certain days with uh, deaths as well. We're coming off of a uh, weekend now, a uh, holiday weekend, where the numbers kind of go down because people don't report them as much. Side rant on that topic. What freaking country is this? This is the United States of America. Do we really have a problem uh, on Saturdays and Sundays reporting death totals? Is that really that difficult for our government? We can't come up with death totals that are actually accurate on the day that they occur or the next day. We've got to wait. We've got to wait for everyone to come in on Monday. We'll just we'll tell you about those deaths in a couple of days. It's not helpful. You look at the charts from all over the country and they're the same way where you have these big, um, uh, big uh, spikes on Tuesday and Wednesday, usually because they're catching up from the weekend. It's like that's that sounds like an excuse like, you know, uh, a third world country would use. And instead, it's the United States of America not being able to report their numbers on time. I just don't even understand it. I don't even understand it. One thing I wanted to get into a little bit was a lot of people were asking about uh, there's been talk of the the coronavirus patient of today being younger than the coronavirus patient coronavirus patients um, of yesterday. Essentially, the first wave, older people getting hit more often. Is that true? So I went through the numbers of Florida. Florida, by the way, has probably the best data in the country when it comes to uh, really breaking it down. They report they actually release a report every day that has a line by line, an individual uh, listing for every single positive test since the beginning of the pandemic. They release it and update it every single day. That's what this is the United States. That's what every state should be doing. Every state should be doing that. And now they're not giving names, they're not giving out private information, but they're just saying like male, 47, you know, and they go through the entire case history so you at least have an idea as to what this, what's happening. We need to have the best information so that we can make the best decisions. You know, if we're getting, if we're like, oh, well, look, the, the death rate's dropping to nothing and everything's going to be fine. Well, what happens if you're just looking at a delay, and this happened all the time at the beginning of this especially, where people thought the death rate was going through the floor, felt confident to go out and do other things, and then realized that actually it was just a weekend, and then they set a record on the next day. That's, it's, just, it's just silly at this point. But as far as the data in Florida goes, it is true. Uh, before June 15th, uh, 47% were under 44 years old. Um, after June 15th, it went up to 66%. Pretty significant uh, increase. Uh, hospitalizations before June 15th, about 17% were under 44 years old. After June 15th, so the last couple of weeks, it has been 26% under 44. So another big increase in younger patients. Um, the data does support the idea that this batch of patients should die less, basically. Uh, it's a kind of a rough way to put it, but uh, they should. Um, 
So patients from the beginning of the pandemic, when you got into the hospital, your chances of dying were about 24.5%. The patients that are going to the hospital now, if you look at their age uh, blend of the group that's going into the hospital now, that number, instead of being 24.5%, is, uh, looks like it's going to be more like 17.3%. So you see a significant decrease in the people who, sh- who quote unquote, should die if statistics uh, play out. Now, none of this takes into account the improvement, and we have had some in um, treatments. Uh, we, there's, it doesn't take into account p- the potential of the strain weakening, which we all kind of hope is going on, but we don't have any evidence of yet. Um, so taken uh, in isolation, this should be theoretically good news. The problem with it is it only counts if you have the same amount of cases. So you have, if you have the same amount of cases, then you would have a lower death rate, which is what we kind of saw a couple of weeks ago. Since then, the case number has been rising. Um, and so we're now looking at the number, and cases, this is something that you've, this is a well-worn piece of a data analysis at this point, but cases aren't really a good indicator as to what's happening. Uh, because there's more testing, we're, we're finding, we're getting better at finding the patients now. We're understanding this a little bit more. So cases should go up. Uh, they're going up faster than the testing, though. That is a concern. Um, but hospitalizations is a better way of kind of looking at this. What you see with hospitalizations um, is there's about 31% more hospitalizations going on, but there's a 30% less chance of dying. So you figure each individual person that goes into the hospital has about a 30% less chance of dying. Very good. However, 31% more people are going into the hospital. Not so good. See how that works? Basically, it evens out. Up until, I think I did this analysis on Thursday, so mid last week, Florida in particular, had hit the point where you would expect the advantage of having younger patients to be neutralized. So they were, had, had, were at that break-even point where if you have any more patients, then you should see, in theory, the death totals start to tick up. Uh, that would, of course, take, as we kind of went over the, uh, the uh, calendar uh, the other day, it's, you know, almost every death from COVID-19 happens between 15 and 35 days. So two to five weeks. Uh, that is generally speaking where all of them happen um, after infection. So we're getting to that period where you should start to see that if these in, in, in continue to increase. Um, now, if you were to keep them at the level they were last week, you'd see the same amount of people dying. However, a higher percentage of those people would be younger, which is a concern, I think, not only of young people, but even of older people. We don't want younger people dying if we can help it. Um, And what we have now seen is hospitalizations rise above those numbers. Um, At about 200 hospitalizations uh, per day is where this breaks even. So with the younger patients, kind of the younger patient advantage, Uh, at about 200 hospitalizations per day, that breaks even. We've seen over 300 on multiple days in Florida now. If that continues, these these numbers will probably start to go up. Now, what that does not mean is that we close the economy again and we all run and hide in our bunkers and we never go see anybody again. That is not an option. This is, uh, people are going back to the debate from March when we didn't have any testing, we didn't know what was going on. There will be crazy governors who will say you have to close this down, but it's really not an option. It can't be an option. The the economy will collapse and we will get those long term um, situations getting worse and worse. I talked about this as a panic room situation before when it's not a good idea to lock yourself in a room in your house where you can't see the outside and you can't get any access to food or go to the bathroom. But But it is a good idea when someone's breaking into your house to go into your panic room. 
I never like this stuff coming from the gov- government, but that's, as we've seen with, you know, over and over again on this program we've showed, that is not where this has come from. This has come from the people. The people led the government. The people said, look, I don't like the situation right now. We're going to stay inside for a little while and see what happens. That's what, ha- what has, has gone on all around the country. Um, and I will say that if we don't turn this around soon, we will start to see the uptick in the deaths. We're starting to see it already in Texas. If you look at the numbers, it's already started to increase. Now, Texas doesn't give nearly as robust data as, as Florida does, so it's hard to detect exactly where the differences are in age group. I will just say, you know, it's, if I am with everybody who says, I don't want the government doing all these lockdowns again. I don't like the mandates. I don't like any of that crap. The best thing that we could do to avoid them is to take precautions. And, you know, if these numbers don't go up, they won't do those things. Um, Right now, we've seen that they kind of are in some places. Let me give you the one more piece before we get to this, before we go to break. The mask mandates are really annoying. I don't like wearing masks. I'm not a fan of it. I'll do it, though. It doesn't kill me. As I said before, kind of jokingly, I like the fact that I don't have to talk to people when I'm wearing a mask. No one comes up to talk to you at the grocery store. They leave you alone. That part I like. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, like I don't, I don't really mind doing it, but I'm not a fan. And I definitely don't like it coming from the government. We have to keep these things in perspective, though. What governments do, and this is a real thing they do, this is, they, they, this is a very basic strategy of the government. Many times, even when they don't really intend on enforcing these mandates, they will say the mandate is very important because they're signaling to everyone, this is crucial, this is vital, please do it. They're trying to get more people to do it. The idea that Greg Abbott is going to find 100,000 people for not having masks at 250 bucks a pop is very unlikely here in Texas. And depending on what state you're on, it's probably very unlikely where you are as well. I mean, think of this. Fireworks have been illegal this entire time in California. Look what happened in California on July 4th. Uh, It was pretty clear that people knew about the mandate but didn't freaking care about the mandate. You can show this whenever you guys want if you have it. Uh, You know, it's one of those things of, these fireworks were going off all over the place, all over the place. And uh, I don't guess maybe we don't have it, but no one cared about the mandate at that point. You know, people are going to assess uh, their behavior and safety and try to do what they can. Uh, and honestly, like I, I drove probably above the speed limit on the way here, too. You get an occasional ticket. You know the rule there. There's a mandate. But you try to judge your safety. I think that's what people are going to do with this. And it's probably what people should do with this as well. Back in a second. Computer systems in cars are the new normal. Electronically controlled transmissions, touch screen displays, I mean, dozens of sensors. It's bonkers. You can't fix a car anymore. It's impossible. Now, I could never do it. So I am a little exempt on this one. But you might have been able to fix your 1980 uh, automobile. This one's totally different. That's where CarShield comes in. CarShield has affordable uh, protection plans that can save you thousands of dollars. CarShield offers a payment flexibility with monthly plans that can be customized to your needs with rate as, a low, as low as 99 bucks a month and no long-term contacts or commitments. That's one of the things that CarShield has innovated on. You can go in and out whenever you need to. They can keep the, the, the rate consistent so you can budget for it. And they offer all sorts of roadside assistance and all sorts of other benefits. Drive with confidence knowing that you got America's uh, coverage, uh, number one, 
uh, they're the number one auto protection company in America. For as low as 99 bucks a month, you can protect yourself from surprises and save thousands for a covered repair. Call 800-CAR-6000 and mention Stu. Visit carshield.com. Use the code Stu to save 10%. It's carshield.com, code Stu. Remember, the promo code Stu is always important because that's how they know you like this stupid show. A deductible may apply. All right, go over to YouTube, search for Stu. You'll see my stupid face there. Click on that and then subscribe and click the bell and all that other stuff. For this Friday, because we have their 100th episode, will be on our YouTube channel. Following that, our 100th anniversary celebration, Stu Does Power Hour, drinking games plus talking politics with a great panel. Chad Prather, Sarah Gonzalez, uh, Bill Richmond from Stephen Crowder Show will be there, Jason Buttrell, myself. It's going to be a lot of fun. Don't miss it. It's this Friday right after the normal show.